Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, hello. Welcome back to OMD Daily. Today is May 29th, 2020, and it's a Friday recap of the day. Um, long story short, it's been a pretty relaxing day. Uh, I didn't end up doing a lot of learning, I'd say, at least nothing too deep. Uh, much of the day was just kind of spent relaxing, going for long walks, and catching up with friends via Zoom calls. If you count learning about Discord as one thing, that's also, that's uh, definitely been a big part of the day, um, as I use that to try to catch up with friends. Um, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're probably more familiar with, I guess, communication technology than I am. Like, I don't even use Slack, for example, but so it took me some time to get acquainted with discord which seems to be a mix of slack and twitch and at least everyone i know who uses discord tells me it's way better than slack um yeah i i don't know i personally don't see the value of slack long term i find at least from my friends who use it at work my partner it just seems like more of a distraction um for long-term productivity than anything it's kind of appealing to people's nature to kind of always feel like they're on top of things and find a, a way to distract themselves as well. But I digress, just me ranting just on my preliminary thoughts. But yeah, so spent some day learning about that. Um, but a good chunk of my day was actually spent reading. Um, not just the books that I'm reading, but also deep into uh, calisthenics, bodyweight training, uh, programming, just it's an area that I'm not very familiar with, but um, I'm trying to figure out how can I incorporate the kind of powerlifting tra- training that I'm used to, which focuses on still very similar fundamentals of strength of strength training, which is low reps, high volume. So you you know the most reps I'll do in a given set is five reps. My sweet spot tends to be in the three to four rep range. That's kind of where. Um, my data collection has resulted in and the kind of uh, rep exertions like the RPE um, which is used for auto-regulated training tends to fall along the bands of seven to eight and if you're not familiar or if you're yeah if you're not familiar with uh, auto-regulation type of strength training it's a way of training and kind of creating sets and rep schemes dependent on how you feel that day so you have to be very aware of listening to your body and knowing what signals um, actually indicate your body getting fatigued during the day Um, and so it requires a lot of years of data collection so I switched to this kind of RP style training a few years back and based on two years worth of data I collected I've kind of found kind of sweet spots of how I respond to the squat bench press and deadlift over time Um, and even then it's, it's been like a continuous experiment for the two-year period where I might see like three-month period of huge increase in strength as followed by three-month periods of 
huge deep or not decline, but um, yeah, I guess like, I'd also see declines or also just kind of complete uh, stasis, just no movement and strength patterns. Each exercise also responding differently to different stimuli. So yeah, there's been a lot of collection that way, but I think moving over, over to bodyweight fitness, it's I'm trying to be cognizant of that foundation, but the foundation I have in powerlifting and how I respond to certain levels of RP, certain levels of rep ranges, um, how I like to structure programs, like the typical four-day per week training style where every day is a full body, starting with either squat or deadlift, and then I usually bench press every day. Um, that kind of style to a bodyweight fitness style, which is definitely different. Um, I can try to keep rep sets and rest intervals similar, but then the load mechanics, like the weight that incorporate um, the movement patterns can definitely be different because of that. So a lot of my time was actually spent just getting acquainted um, on progressions and trying to figure out just personally like what, what I'm trying to achieve with calisthenics type training and also being cognizant of the fact that my gym probably won't open for another two months if I'm lucky so that's got me thinking about maybe this isn't even just a maintenance form of training um that was kind of what it was prior to so for the first two months of the COVID lockdown I just followed a very kind of routine full body sequence three times a week of using pistol squats handstand push-ups and I didn't have a pull-up bar so I couldn't do that but the idea was to just continuously focus on key strength theories, focus on continuously moving so that when the gym opens, I'll be ready, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, and so I'm, I've been constantly trying to figure out how can I have the best carryover to my main movements of the bench press, the deadlift, and the squat um, so I don't lose an egregious amount of strength. But at the same time, what can I do to actually get better in my weaker areas like I know my back is definitely much weaker than the other parts of my body like um, my posterior chain like my lower back is probably pretty strong from all the deadlifting my uh, quads and hamstrings are pretty strong from the squatting my upper body especially the pushing motion is strong because I do benching four times a week but my pulling is extremely weak um, on the vertical and the horizontal planes <laughs> just because the amount of pull-ups I do is definitely definitely shockingly low. Um, and so that's got me thinking more about how, what are the goals, what do I want to work on? And yeah, so spent the time, spent the day just building, building out kind of the first test at a program. Um, you know, they say it's better to have a program that you can consi consistently run suboptimally compared to the most optimal program that you'll never adhere to. So the one I've designed now uh, has a similar intention to the powerlifting program I've had before, which typically was four times a week of heavy lifting and two to three times a week of mobility and cardio and correction work. Um, so the rotation I'm running now is more of a three-day rotation. So there's a ABC day, uh, day one, two, three, and I'm just going to be continuously rolling that forward. Um, since I don't really go to a gym and I can just do it at home, I figured and also don't go to meetings either. It's just gotten much easier to kind of schedule things in um, on a three-day basis because I don't really have weekends much either. So the way the program is currently set up, um, 
day one is a push and a squat day. Uh, day two is a pull and a glute ham raise day. And day three is a skill day. So this is somewhat similar to what I'm used to, which is as close to a full day training uh, protocol as possible. So day one focuses has one major squat movement, which is the pistol squat, which is the one-legged squat. And I'd like to do five sets of five reps of just clean uh, pistol squatting, no assistance whatsoever, just perfect form, um, getting all the way down and all the way back up. And then I have, um, it follows a three separate exercises focused on the vertical push, the horizontal push, and the specific skill I'm trying to develop over the long term. So these kind of originate to the handstand push-up, uh, the one-arm push-up, so the handstand becoming a vertical one, the one-arm being the horizontal, and then the plunge push-up where you know, that's kind of the stretch goal where I, I'd love to do a plunge, but on top of that, I want to do a plunge as and then do a push-up with it, which would be awesome. So if you don't know what a plunge is, it's practically imagine the push-up position, but your legs are in the air. So your entire body is suspended by your arms and you're not resting on anything. You're just completely suspended in air. And then you can do a push-up with that. So it's like the no-leg push-up. So that's what I'm working towards. Um, and then the day two is the pull and the GHR, which is the glute ham raise, which is my substitution for the deadlift um, because the deadlift is a low-back hamstring dominant movement, especially the conventional I'm trying to create a makeshift glute ham raise at home, which, um, if you don't know, is a machine that's used as an accessory to help you get a stronger lower back and hamstring. So I'm trying to create that with some bands and, yeah, working on that. Um, and then followed by some a ton of pull-ups. I got the pull-up bar, so I found a way to, or at least what I'm hypothesizing is creating a weighted pull-up element by getting one of my travel backpacks like it's a huge 45 liter backpack and filling it up with bottles of water so each bottle of water I calc I found out weighs about 2.2 pounds so I'm hoping to just load that up and if I can fit something close to you know 20 bottles inside then I'll get my 45 pound weight right there so that's what I'm hoping for um yeah, and honestly, it's, it's just doing a lot of pull-ups, <laughs> a lot of chin-ups. Um, and the stretch goal there is eventually I'd like to be able to do a one-arm pull-up. So not assisted, none of that, you know, one arm is actually on the pull-up, but you have the other arm like grabbing your wrist, like none of that. Like, But actually a free one-arm pull-up. Um, they recommend you only do that if you can actually do 90 pounds. So half your body weight um, in weighted pull-ups. So for me, that'd be more like 70 pounds. But I I, I think I'll move over as soon, as soon as I can do about 90 pounds just so I have that more wiggle room. And then the big skill I'm working on, hoping to work on, is the front lever, which is... Um, so the plunge that I just talked to you about, where it's practically like a push-up, but with your legs suspended... Just think of the inverse of that. That's what a front lever looks. So you're hanging on the pull-up bar, but your body is completely uh, horizontal. And on top of that, I'd love to be able to do horizontal rows, so inverted rows while in that position. That would be the stretch goal. So that's what I'm working on. 
And the skills are to help with that are working on my handstands on my uh, day three, working on my L-sits, which is practically you suspend your body off your hands and you're sitting in this L position, um, but you're completely raised off the floor just by your hands. So that requires a lot of um, scapular depression and um, arm and core strength right there. So yeah, we're <sighs> designing a program to make that all happen. Um, I think I'm using a mix of the kind of full body powerlifting scheme and read deeper into uh, Pavel Tatsulin's grease to groove technique. Um, I've been experimenting with that as soon as I got the pull up all day. And I think that might be very possible now since I'm kind of trapped at home. So grease to groove technique is that you just kind of sporadically throughout the day do like, you know, two to five reps of a given exercise at random intervals, at least five minutes rest, at, um, ideally 10 to 15 minutes. So um, I, I got the pull up in the morning and I've just been doing pull, I think I did about 10 sets of pull ups, with sometimes 30 minute intervals, sometimes an hour interval, but making just constantly just doing pull ups. So that's the idea. Um, I'm hoping to incorporate that further. I think, I think as I fill out my Google sheet, more with the data, etc. I might think about sharing it uh, on my site. So just stay tuned for that. You can subscribe to my newsletter. I'll probably share it there if I ever do decide to share it. I'm a little self-conscious, so, you know, be aware of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, that took a lot of my day. Just my Google Doc was just filled with tabs and trying to figure out what do I want to do, what I want to focus on, what progressions do I want to take up. Um, I, I, if you're ever curious about learning about bodyweight fitness, like calisthenics, just go to Reddit. Um, they have an awesome community, and I spent the whole day just digging into all the information there. And then the second part I want to talk about is about this investor that I've um, kind of dug into called Josh Tarasov. Josh Tarasov is the founder, managing partner, and I believe the only employee of Greenlee Capital Partners. Um, I learned about Josh uh, in the past because a few investors that I, uh, I think maybe possibly more prominent or widely known investors in like the kind of Twitter or uh, financial social media universe, um, like Rob Vinal, and I think he's based in Switzerland or Germany. Um, Michael Shern, he wrote the investment checklist. Uh, and damn, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, which I feel very bad about. I read, I've been really reading his stuff a lot too. Uh, John Huber from Sabre Capital. So they've all been... Um, each, like, I, I'd be reading their kind of letters independently, and they all make kind of a reference to this guy called Josh Tarasov. And so when three people I like as investors triangulate to the singular individual, it gets me curious on, well, who is this man called Josh Tarasov? So a uh, quick background on him. He started Greenlee Partners, I think, in 2007, 2006, he said. Um, and... He started right out of business school. He went to Columbia because he wanted to learn about value investing. Um, he was a banker before that, and he thought the fund industry compromised too heavily on asset gathering, so he wouldn't really be able to be the investor he wanted. So he just launched a fund with $2 million of family and friend money uh, right out of school in 2007. And so I read through um, kind of three major 
kind of interviews slash articles about him. And I figured I'd just kind of share the learnings I had from those three. It's, it's quite challenging to find stuff on Josh. Um, like I, I've compiled, I think I might have maybe one or two more readings I can do on him. So if you do have some, if you happen to listen to this and you happen to know about the investor called Josh Tarasov, then I would highly appreciate it if you would send me some um, material you have on him that I haven't talked about today. So I'll begin by, I guess, talking about um, the first interview I read, which was a 2017 interview he gave at the Ben Graham Center. I believe that's the value investing uh, program in the University of Western Ontario's uh, business school. So what to talk about? I think what really drew me to Josh was this kind of unique investment style, which I think in a nutshell, um, he says it's kind of like buying fantastic businesses at high multiples and holding them forever. So it sounds very familiar familiar to the traditional compounder type investor, the growth investor who, you know, buys a company like Amazon and just watches it grow, right? It's kind of also similar to Buffett um, and his kind of Phil Fisher side where it's buy a company and you never want to sell it. But what I find interesting about Josh is that he's been very open and vocal about how, um, well, at least one thing is that culture is super important. And so he talks about the intangible value of culture and how um, it is another factor into the competitive advantage. And I haven't seen many investors actually talk about that openly. So this, I think, for me, was a radar um, that attracted me to him. And I think a part of that is also having an owner-led management. I think um, Josh talks about how he has 11 companies in his portfolio and nine of them are founder-led and two are founder-led in like a chairman position with the CEO having been there for 20 plus years. So they're kind of like founder like they're kind of part of the family. And on the culture side, something else that I found interesting that he talked about was how um, it's one of the hardest things for him, like harm him to kind of assess, but also, and also a place where he's made the most mistake on is where it's been like a borderline thing. So like it's where the culture of the business is kind of okay and he he just doesn't have a high conviction on it but he just wants it to like fit you know he'll kind of rationalize it and that's kind of the bias that he's I think referring to and that's been the most I think difficult thing that he's talked about in terms of his investment process and I think what he's done to overcome this weakness that he kind of refers to as this desire to kind of compromise or I guess more of the behavior where he ends up compromising on his kind of strict uh, view on culture and even like business model itself, where you know he'll do all this research and he says that after doing the research he has this instinct and he might want to just buy it and he'll kind of compromise it. Oh, you know it'll work out, but later on after purchasing the investment it might actually not work out, um, and he'll realize that he missed all these points. And especially when he has a concentrated style like he does where he has like 10 to 11 companies in a portfolio, that can be a pretty uh, damaging <laughs> decision to his capital base. So one process he talks about that he implemented is he'll do all the work on a company and he won't make a decision and he'll not like con consciously think about the company for a period of time. And he'll actually allow the subconscious to kind of work it out um he's not sitting down and saying every day like 
at, you know for a week going on about okay i did the work two weeks ago or a week ago and let's see if my thoughts change he's not doing any of that it's more so he does the work and he just kind of leaves it and he just lets it kind of ruminate and he allows various insights to come to him and i definitely related with that to some degree because that's been how i've been thinking about investing as well like i like to do the work and i just kind of let it ruminate just it's i got that idea from um reviewing books like i find that after i read a book and then i let it sit and i come back to it even like a month or two later and i read my notes and my thoughts on it i can get a much different perspective um, about the book and sometimes i'll take new things out of it that i might not have uh, realized at the point so that was a pretty interesting thing that I learned about his process. But I think I might have jumped in too deep before actually explaining why he's so unique and what I like about him. Um, by the way, I share all this stuff in the episode notes at OMD Ventures. Um, so just check it out if what I say kind of doesn't make sense um, and I kind of paraphrase him too much. Like I ended up copy and pasting a lot of his quotes because he just, his way of conversing I find is pretty awesome. So he probably might do a better job than I do um, talking about it, but I'll just kind of give you the high level. Um, so I guess the way that Josh says he's different from traditional value investors comes in uh, three forms, as he describes. One is that he constantly bets he bets on change. Um, he he talks about how traditional value investors, you know, they're betting against change, uh, and I think Mark Andreessen. Uh, famously said that about Buffett where he said Buffett and his the value investors are betting against change whereas he is betting for change um, but one can say that the only constant is change so that's what Josh alludes to when he says um, that's what he is investing in so he's looking for products um, and businesses that are in this kind of win-win situation where the change is inevitable um, but this business has found a way to kind of add value in the existing system um, and create this win-win situation where the ecosystem itself prospers as a result of this business existing. Um, and that's kind of the opportunity he looks for. The second part where he is different um, is that he's not looking for statistically cheap businesses. And in one particular article I read, he kind of goes on a long uh, discussion about how he buys businesses that are really high multiples. But uh, one example he also gave in this interview, uh, in the 2017 interview, was how he bought Amazon in 2011, which is at a 200 times PE, not cheap by any statistical measures. But even if, even when he ran his own normalized free cash flow with his own DCF, he was still buying it at 30 to 40 times. And that that alone, like even if you tell traditional value investors, that you're buying a business for 30 to 40 times, they'll think is outrageous, right? Because I think the standards of value investing is that if you buy something below 10x, that's cheap. If it's below 5x, that's very cheap. Um, if it's 15x, it's kind of average. And then 20x is kind of frothy. Like, I think that's the kind of standardized benchmark a lot of value investors use, where if you're buying a good business for 20x uh, free cash flow, then it's a, pre- it's a pretty fair bet. But Josh makes the argument that if you're buying this amazing company, then it should never really fit in the average framework. Um, it's like you're trying to fit a circle in, into like a square box or something, or like a cylinder into a square box. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that's the second thing where he's different on. Um, he just doesn't buy statistically cheap companies, and he doesn't think that 
these companies should ever be statistically cheap at all because that's kind of the advantage. Like these are very unique and weird businesses. They don't really fit inside traditional uh, valuation metrics. That's the whole point. And then the third is that he holds businesses for a really, really long time. Um, and that's kind of the short form of his long, I'd say, speech where he kind of talks about how um, most investors kind of have this belief that companies that are systematic, uh, systematically undervalued will kind of mean revert, you know, in two, three, even like five years. But there are plenty of cases where these great companies will be systematically undervalued for decades. Like you look at Walmart, you look at Brochure, Amazon, Netflix, like these compounding businesses were arguably undervalued for a very, very long period of time. For, you know, people might have noticed in 2000 or 2010 that Amazon was a great business, but even then it was undervalued, right? It it might have still looked expensive, super expensive in 2010, but compared to 2020, it's nothing. So the idea is to not be constantly looking for a business that um, will kind of mean revert into this valuation, but to buy something that is going to do better for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm just kind of reading through my notes. Mm. So I think that's kind of the first, um, that's how, that was a great overview of his kind of investing style. Um, he talks about his investment in uh, Markel, Trupanion, Berkshire, Amazon uh, as kind of examples um, of his investment philosophy. And then I read a Korean, a Korean investing blog um, where the writer kind of wrote down thoughts on a 2018 lecture that Josh had given. I, I don't know where he gave it at. Um, the blog wasn't very clear, but I kind of pulled out some learnings that I thought were pretty valuable to go on top of the 2017 lecture that I, or interview I read about. Um, so Josh kind of talks about how circle of competence is important and he started out kind of figuring out or putting in place immediately what his circle of competence probably was and investing in that circle and then continuously learning to expand it. Um, and when you have a style where you invest in compounders and when you buy a company and you want it to hold it for a very long period of time, it gives you the advantage where you don't really have to be going around chasing for ideas constantly. So you can actually take your time expanding on your circle of competence. So in this lecture, Josh said his circle of competence in, in this kind of area of volume price virtuous cycle, which I took it as a reframing of what Nicholas Sleep from Nomad Capital talks about is, as the economics of scale shared, which is uh, the business model he used to refer to Amazon, which uh, Josh is also a big fan of. And I think it's the idea of where the business is a low cost uh, producer and it has a cost advantage, but instead of only taking it for itself, it uses that to create customer value proposition where you share the economies of scale um, and you use that to widen your moat further and that ex actually expands your earning power. So that's the kind of business that Josh seems to be interested in. Um, it's kind of like the marquee Seattle companies like Costco and Amazon. Um, and he also talks about how quality, quality companies are businesses that do not exploit the system, but actually add value to the system. And that, I think, um, is a very powerful model to think about. It's, it's like the win-win situation, but there are many companies that exploit, you know, uh, flaws in government regulations or 
uh, inefficiencies inside the industry and try to exploit it, whereas others try to add value. And that might not be profitable in the near term, but that can actually be extremely valuable in the long run. So that was a very important mental model to kind of incorporate as well and to just think deeper about. He, I think he kind of calls it as looking for a company leading an inevitable inevitable change to an industry or behavior and is in the position or it's already at scale. That's kind of, I think, in a nutshell, the kind of companies he's looking for, my interpretation of it, at least. Um, something else that was unique in the lecture was how he talks about tiebreaker brands. So there's a traditional mental model in investing where people seem to create two mutually exclusive buckets of companies, like a company is either a franchise or a commodity, like Buffett com- commonly says, you want to build by franchise companies that have earnings powers that, you know, i.e. have powerful moats and commodity businesses are bad because they are kind of price takers. They're not price makers. Um, but Josh talks about this kind of in-between stage where you have these tiebreaker brands where you have a situation in a commodity environment where a trusted brand will win business and be able to change, be able to charge a premium. And some examples can be like Deloitte and professional services, where professional services is a commodity, but they can charge a premium and they will probably win over uh, clients just purely based on the brand. And this can be kind of collectively said for the big four who have a chunk of the professional service industry, who by in all definitions is kind of a commodity, right? Same can be said for like AWS for cloud computing services. Like there are other cloud providers, but customers will probably choose AWS because, you know, why risk it? Go for the one that's trusted and just pay a little premium. Um, he also has like a brief talk about Spotify, where I think the biggest takeaway for me um, was that Spotify is in a win-win business environment. I think that's something I talked about in the previous couple days uh, discussion about Spotify. But yeah, it was kind of nice to hear his perspective on it as well. Um, I, I, I didn't go out looking for confirming evidence, FYI, but uh, when I read about how Josh looked at Spotify as a win-win business that helps record labels and consumers, I was pretty, um, it was pretty nice to learn about that and hear his perspective. But something that was, I didn't think about was how the record labels were actually making possibly even more money distributing through Spotify than with traditional uh, like CD channels because the margins apparently are lower. And so for the record labels, um, giving up a bit of the distribution to Spotify isn't really anything because they'd always been doing that to various kind of music outlets through all the CD distribution in the past. So this is actually a better uh, development for them. Once again, win-win. And the final thing uh, I read on Josh was from a Microcap Club article on think, thinking different to be better. I kind of dissect or pulled out three huge quotes um, relating to what Josh talked about. And they kind of touch upon this uh, overall perspective of um, just paying a high multiple for a business. And I think, I actually think it was actually pulled out from the 2017 interview that I kind of just talked about. But regardless, it talks about the value of looking at business in a different way, like not just looking at something that's statistically cheap because everyone else might be doing that, um, but trying to have insight, you know, trying to have a very perception in how you value a company. And just thinking again about if you're actually buying an amazing company, does it, does that 30 to 40 times 
um, multiple really like when you compare that to the average sure that's expensive but you're not looking for an average company so thinking differently about um, how do I should put this the valuation aspect of it and not being tied down to what the industry decides as what is expensive or not but actually having personal um, personal judgment on whether this actually is expensive or not based on the actual uh, the long-term prospects of the business it's always nice kind of hearing someone talk about valuation in a different way than the traditional value investing circles um, so that I think was a big kind of refresher um, on top of the existing the past articles I'd read um, another quote was kind of on how just re pounding in the mindset of the fact that exceptional compounders are by definition doing something idiosyncratic and weird. So people are fundamentally not super comfortable with that. They will not look statistically cheap and they will not be understood well by other people. So just remember that. Um, he also says, you generally won't find misunderstood business with revenues growing double digits, no debt, 20% ROICs, insider purchases, etc. And a misunderstood business is the one I want to own. One thing that screeners are good for is screening for those excellent traits I mentioned earlier and then going to the first 10 years of financial statements of that company and seeing where the growing pains were, when it was un misunderstood, and when one should have gotten involved. I think that's a very powerful thing. Because, um, yeah, like when you when a lot of investors screen, they just screen for like 15% return on investor capital, 20% returns on equity, constantly growing revenue. Oh, and I want it to be statistically cheap, you know, under 20 times earnings. And that's what everybody does. That's why everybody buys MasterCard. That's why everybody buys Google. Um, although I'd say Google and MasterCard are fundamentally different in my perspective on what makes them good businesses. Um, but yeah, I think looking at the companies in the much earlier years when they were struggling to gain uh, traction would be a worthwhile exercise because one can argue that Google has kind of only recently um, gained in investor confidence as a dominant platform um, because I think in, even in the 2000s, even in 2010, it might have not been very clear whether Google was actually a very viable business or not. It didn't own YouTube then, I believe. Um, it, I think Android was, like the smartphone thing was still growing like people are still unsure uh, i think google said more com competition in search than before digital advertising wasn't as big then as it is now so I, it would be a good exercise to look at businesses then to kind of figure out like well, what was the return on invested capital then what did it look like what like did the assets change drastically or did it just take time for the scale to really kick in but yeah so those are the three things um three articles I read about Josh to learn deeper about his investing philosophy. Um, I think he's someone that I'll, I hope to follow further um, as I progress in my investing journey. Like he's definitely someone that um, I think has a similar type of investing philosophy as I do. So just trying to find more like-minded minds. Um, so yeah, if you have anything on Josh Teresoff or if you come across anything or an investor like him, please let me know and shoot him my way. I'd love to learn more. And yeah, I hope this was somewhat interesting, somewhat valuable to your busy day and hope to have you back tomorrow. Take care.